Well, today is an exciting day. We're starting a new series called Anchored. And the series is really based on the aspects of our salvation that anchor us in our faith. The things in our faith that, that anchor us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, how we receive salvation, and everything that's entrenched with this. And where it really comes from is from the great Reformation and the Reformation that took place within the 15 and 1600s within Christendom. And as we think through this, if you're unfamiliar, there was a man by the name of Martin Luther. He was a monk, a priest as he was living his life studying scripture. He looked at his job in the Catholic Church and as he meditated on the book of Romans and was reading it, his mind was opened. And his heart became burdened by what he was seeing taking place in the Catholic Church. And because of this, he wanted to bring about reform. He wanted to bring about a change in practice and thought because he saw some things that in his opinion were just wrong. They were evil. Uh, some practices, so much deplorable things that was taking place in the 16th century. Errant theology. He saw clerical abuse, people taking advantage of God's people. And really this was seen in the selling of indulgences. What was taking place is he saw that the church was teaching that the people, the laity, were dirty and the priests themselves were clean. They were the only ones clean. They were the only ones with the authority with the power, with the ability to go to God in prayer and to have access to God. And then the church started doing something on top of this bad theology. They started paying for people to have access to the priest so that they could come and pray and have their sins forgiven. In other words, in order for you to receive faith and salvation, you had to pay the priest to do this. And Martin Luther was reading the scripture. He's reading the text. And he was burdened and overwhelmed with all of this hurt and heartbreak and bad theology and bad teaching and bad practices that in the church in Wittenberg in 1517, he nailed something called the 95 Theses to the doors of the church. And as he did this, his hope was not to condemn the Pope it was not to condemn the Catholic Church. It was not to bring about a whole new way of doing church. He just wanted the Catholic Church to return to Scripture. The response of the church was not to embrace what he said. In fact, they expelled him from the church. They told him to depart and people who were a part of the Reformation were hunted down. Many of them were killed. They were burned alive because they held to the fact that God alone offered salvation. And instead of receiving the lessons of Scripture, the Catholic Church removed them. And that is why we have Protestants and Catholics today. There are marching orders in the Reformation, but this movement in the 16th and 17th century, the heartbeat of it was to reform. That's why it's called the Reformation, the Catholic Church, because of the doctrinal and moral corruption that undermined the Christian gospel. 
means by which we have access to God, means by which we receive salvation. And so you see in the Reformation these five things that lay the groundwork that are essential to salvation, the gospel, good news, to where we can have access to God. And so you will hear over the next few weeks a sermon on grace alone. A sermon on faith alone. A sermon on scripture alone. A sermon on the glory of God alone. And as you do this, obviously a sermon on Christ alone. And each one of these solas, the five solas, talk about grace, pure mercy in God through Christ, that we cannot earn it, it is a gift. Sola fide, faith alone, belief in Jesus, not works, not in good deeds. Sola de gloria, the glory of God alone, that only God is worthy of praise and salvation because it is only by God that we have access to him. Sola scriptura, that scripture is the sole authority for life and the only means by which we can find a path towards salvation. Sola Christus, Christ alone. That we only have one Redeemer, it is Christ, it is Christ alone, by no other name do we have salvation. And what I believe and what I hope and the intent of this sermon series over the next five weeks is that it will give us a pathway towards Calvary, towards the greatest news on Easter Sunday. And it's my hope and my prayer that us as a church, that the Spirit of God will fall fresh on us, that the Spirit of God would renew and rejuvenate our hearts, that the Spirit of God would capture us in new and fresh ways, that as we see how salvation comes through grace, that we will be sharers of grace, as we see the message of faith, that we will be people of faith. As we talk about the glory of God, that we will be men and women who worship not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. As we see the power and the presence of Scripture, that we would be men and women who not only cling to and hold and value the Word, but live out the Word. That as we think about Christ alone, that we will be men and women of God who die to self, pick up our cross, and follow after Jesus. And we're starting with grace alone. See, grace has its origin in Christ, and it has its origin in God, and it's something that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, I believe the Old Testament is a picture of God's grace towards us, and there's this description in it in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, that make it so crystal clear about God's gracious nature to us. It said, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We have this depiction of grace, a description of grace, that the Lord God is merciful and gracious. It is who He is, that He is, and this is grace, slow to anger, 
that God in his grace doesn't just bring out the whooping stick every time we do something wrong. He's not always there to give us a beating, but he is slow to anger. He is abounding. He's overflowing. He is abounding in his steadfast love and his faithfulness to us. And think about when this was written. This was written to a people of God in the Exodus. People who, when God didn't show up the way they wanted to, they made a golden calf, but God was still gracious to them. A people who, although God continually provide for them, they long for slavery and to turn them back on God and to go back to captivity. A, a people who created sinfulness and were constantly faithful, faithless to God, but God was faithful to them, keeping his steadfast love. See, the Old Testament reveals that grace is a characteristic of God, that it has its origin in God, that it is the nature of God to be gracious to us. One of the most profound things about the study of religion and the study of different aspects of, of faith and people of faith is this, that grace is unique among Christianity. You won't see other gods who are proclaimed and spoken of or taught of who abound in grace. In fact, grace is not in the DNA of any other God. It belongs to our God alone. In order for you to have acceptance in other religions, for you to achieve enlightenment in other religions, you have to work for it. You have to earn it. You have to achieve. But in Christianity, we proclaim that it is the grace of God that offers salvation. In other words, you can't earn it. It's unmerited favor of God that he gives to those who would receive it. It is there for the taking. We see that grace is God's loving response to our inability to do anything about our sinful condition. Grace alone was so important to the reformers because they saw this practice and this abuse based on the need for money, not the need for Scripture. They had St. Peter's Basilica that was in ruins. It needed to be rebuilt. The church was poor, and in order to fixed their problems, they came up with this practice that if you paid for access to the priest, that somehow God would hear you. They had these practices that if you had enough money, even though your family might have died and gone to hell, that somehow you could pay their way out of it. They had these practices that had nothing to do with God, everything to do with money, and Martin Luther just proclaimed and beat the drum of grace and grace alone. I would like to say that this is no longer ever present in the, the Catholic Church, but that's simply not true. Before the pandemic, my wife and I had the opportunity to go visit Vatican City. We were there in St. Peter's. And as we were getting our tour the tour guide gave us this instruction as we saw this door, the door of Jubilee or the Holy Door. And it said every 25 years, this door is opened. 
And if you come back and if you pay your money, you can walk through that door and all of your sins will be forgiven. And I, I remember watching this and thinking, did the church really not learn this? Did the Catholics, do they still really do this? And the current Pope in 2015, December 2015, a special declaration of Jubilee opened the doors. And Pope Benedict, his predecessor, walked through the doors as well so they could experience the forgiveness. I mean, when you think about how deceitful this practice is and how contrary to Scripture it, it is, we need to understand that we see grace as the only means by which we have access to God. Grace is seen in redemption. It is manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is what Calvary is all about. Calvary is the grace of God appearing in the person and work, the form of Jesus Christ, who the righteousness of God, who was fully righteous, fully pleasing, fully free from sin, came and he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross and he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Grace manifested itself. The righteous for the unrighteous. He died for our sins. His blood covers us. That is grace personified. That is grace embodied. That is grace on display. Ephesians speaks of this. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin. Now, some people want to talk about being dead in our sin in, in various ways. Some people want to say, because you're dead in your sin, you can have no spiritual thought. You can have no thought of God whatsoever. And that's simply not true. If you look at people who follow Islam, who believe in a God that is not the God we serve, who, according to the Scripture, are spiritually dead, they have thoughts of God and thoughts of Jesus. If you think about the, the Buddhist, if you think about the Universalists, who all believe different than Christianity, every other religion, they have spiritual thoughts. However, there is this truth and this reality that people who are separated from God are spiritually dead because they have no relationship. To be spiritually dead is to be separated from God through their sin. That is spiritual death. No relationship with Him. And you were dead. You had no relationship with God. You were dead. You were separated from God in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work within the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, meaning that we were all sin. We were all dead in our trespasses, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God my favorite clause in the whole scripture, but God, my favorite two words in scripture right here, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were separated from him, made us alive together with, with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. Grace is a gift. It is not something you buy. It is not something you earn. Grace is a gift. If you want to think of it in this terms, it is wrapped up with a bow on. Grace is a gift. It is free. Grace is a gift. It is universally offered to everyone. Grace is a gift of God as expressed in his actions of extending mercy, loving kindness, and salvation to all who would believe in the name of Jesus. Grace is a gift. And I believe this is the simplest and most difficult aspect of salvation, that grace is free. It goes against the majority of people's nature. Most people don't want a handout. Most people don't want other people to fix things for them. Women, wives, can I get an amen on this one? How many times have you been in a car with your husband and he's been lost and this shouldn't happen anymore because we have GPS on our phones, but they won't plug in the address because they know where the place is? You ever been there? You ever been there with the broken sink or maybe the, the toilet washer isn't working the way that it's supposed to? Maybe the hinge is off and instead of looking something up on YouTube, instead of calling for help, the man is like, you know what? I got this. Just be quiet, woman. After I break it, I'll fix it. We don't want people to fix things for us. But grace is one of those things to where salvation, the penalty of our sins, was fixed by God. And although it's simple, it's so difficult to receive. And people think that if I just give a little more, if I support financially this church, then God would receive me. If, if I go on mission trips, if I, if I serve the poor, if I serve in, in the church, then I could find favor with God and I could be accepted by God if I, if I bring my Bible every weekend, if I invite people every weekend, if I check the list, if I do this and that, then God will love me. But grace is a gift. He already loves you. He already finds you acceptable. And the, the treasure of this gift is that you're not acceptable and pleasing to God because of you. You're pleasing and acceptable because of his love for you. And grace costs Nothing, because grace has been paid for by Jesus. He already paid it all. Grace is free. And the, the, the hang-up that we have with grace, grace isn't grace until it's received. The unmerited favor of God based on His nature and His character and His love for you and me. Grace is ready for the taking. And although it's free for you and me, it cost Jesus everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The message of grace is that Christ died for us. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. 
Romans 3 was like the defining moment for Luther and Grace alone. When he was sitting in his room as he was studying Scripture and, and comparing and contrasting that to the practice of the Catholic Church, he looked at it and these words just bound in his heart and his life. It said, for there is no distinction between clergy and laity. There's no distinction between the monk and the priest and the person who comes to church to worship on Sunday. There's no distinction for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace. This was the light that came off for Him. We're not justified because we paid for it. It's already been paid for by Christ. We're justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So when we try to buy it. We deny what grace really is. When we try to earn it, we deny the power of grace. Grace is a gift. One of the things that we do as a church, when somebody visits our church every Sunday and we find them and we meet them, we offer every first-time guest a gift. Have y'all ever seen these? Have y'all ever been curious what's in it? Y'all want to see? We're like, yeah, I got I to know. I gotta, I'm not showing you. It's none of your business. I'm just kidding. Grace. It's a gift, but, but here's the thing. When people come to our church, this is all that's in there. We have an information packet, but there's not one in this bag, so I'm not showing it to you because it's not there. When somebody visits our church, we give them a mug. And we say, this is what I say every time I meet somebody. Except for you, it'll be the first time I ever say it if you're a guest with us this morning. Say, so, hey, we have a little gift for you. Uh, it's a coffee mug. I tell them what it is before they open it. We want you to take it. We want you to use it because we know whenever you wake up in the morning to have your coffee, the first thought you're going to have is what church should I go to? And we want to give you a friendly reminder of what church you should join, right? And the majority of the time, people take it and they say, okay, thank you. I appreciate it. But every once in a while, I've never figured it out. People are like, no, thanks. I'm like, it's a coffee. No, no, thanks. It's not a gift until it's received. And although grace is offered to all people, not all people receive the gift of grace. They deny Christ. They reject Christ. And the reason that people reject Christ varies. Some people are very honest and they just like their sinful life. They understand the nature of God's grace. They understand the wrath. They understand that if they receive Christ as their Savior, that they're to live for Him, that He's to become their master. And they look at their life and the pleasures of this world, and some of them simply say, you know what? I just like my life. I'm good. I'll do that later. I'll do that next week, next year, next decade. I'll wait till I'm a grandparent. And for some, they die in their sins. And what the, the Catholic Church was teaching is that if someone died in their sins and you gave enough money, they put a price tag on it, you could get them, out of, get them out of hell. But the problem is, once you die, and it's appointed for every man to die, however you die in that state, you can't get out of hell. There's no payment to get out of hell. You've got to get out of hell on this side of eternity. But some people look at it and they're like, I, I'm good. Other people, and I think this is more tragic, they look at their life, and they look at their decisions, they look at what they've done, and they have this thought that I think enslaves people. 
They, they have this thought, which I think incarcerates people to a destiny separated from God. This is a thought. I am too bad. My sins are too many. There's no way a holy and righteous God would ever love or forgive someone like me. They think their sin is greater than the grace of God. Romans 5, 21 says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is greater. Grace is greater than all the wrongs you and I have ever done. Grace is greater. For the drug addict, for the person strung out on meth or cocaine or heroin, grace is greater. Grace is greater for the man or woman who have found themselves in a situation and instead of getting out of it, they just dig deeper. Grace is greater for the failed marriage. Grace is greater for the person who thinks that they're alone and unloved. Grace is greater and grace makes it possible for God to forgive sinners and gather them together. Grace is greater. That's why we sing songs and why one of the, the, the songs that has always been sung, penned from Scripture, is grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. I'm really proud of myself right now, and I just want to say you're welcome for not attempting to sing it. Grace is, is greater. And it cleanses and wipes away all of our wrongdoing. God's grace is greater than all the hang-ups and hurts and habits that are detrimental to ourselves, that are in rebellion against God. Grace is greater. And, and grace makes it possible for God to bless believers with an understanding, with undeserved benefits that enrich their lives and unite them together in the church. I don't know if you have thought about Sunday morning church, Wednesday night church, your connect group, being able to come and gather and worship as an extension of God's grace, but it is. I firmly believe with all my heart that church is not a burden to weigh you down. Church is a gift that God has blessed you with to live the life that he has called you to. And our church is not perfect. I mean, we're better than most of the ones around here. I'm just kidding, kind of. It's a joke, so chill out if you're like, man, I can't believe you said that. I think he's right. I know. Church is a gift. It's a, a gift that God gives us to live in such a way that is pleasing to him. Because we live in a sin-fallen world with a sin-fallen nature, but God in his grace and his benevolence and his goodness to, to us gives us a family that we can belong to, that we can share our lives with, that we can have community with. God in his grace gives us church, and I think about why these flowers are here today. They're from our funeral yesterday. Of Anita Crank, where, where we celebrated her life and legacy. And I see the grace of God 
portrayed in the way that people loved on Richard and are loving on Richard. Grace is seen that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And it's not just for those who were super active. It's for those who, who maybe have been stuck at home because of COVID and they're facing death and, and they have loss. I think of Mary and Christmas Smith. And the loss of his mother and the funeral we're going to have tomorrow, how in God's grace there are people who will surround them. I think of the Carter family on Wednesday. We're going to bury his mom. Grace that we don't have to do this by ourselves. Grace that we have shared values. Grace that God loves us enough not to leave us alone. Grace. And so a shameless plug. If you want to become a member of our church, if you want to know what it's like, the expectations of our members tomorrow night, 6.15, dinner with the pastor. We would love to tell you about our beliefs, our practice, our mission involvement, our strategy for spiritual development. If you have any questions, we would love to answer those for you so you can understand what it means to be a part of our family. Grace also makes it possible for God to reflect His grace in believers' character and relationships. Have you ever thought about that? How grace is seen, and we can see the person and work of Jesus Christ through His followers, through that connection that takes place with other believers. Grace for the moment, grace for the days, how whenever we come to church and maybe we're down and we just need that hug, even though COVID's going on, that somebody comes up and at the right moment through their mask, they smile at us and they give you that nod and they know, hey, it's okay to give me a hug. Grace to where you have other people who will come in and encourage you and maybe send that text message. Grace of someone who will call you because you haven't been in church in a while and they're like, hey, where are you? How are you doing? We want to make sure you're understanding that you're missed. And it's okay to not be here every Sunday. We get it. But at the same time, it is not okay for you not to know you're loved. Grace seen in community. That is the picture of the church being lived out. The grace of God in the hearts and lives of other people who can encourage us and build us up and challenge us. Knowing that God receives us just as we are, but he refuses to leave us away. That God receives us, but he wants us to be molded and transformed into the person and work of Jesus to reflect his values, his morals, and his life and love to the world around us. Grace. God's unmerited favor. Grace. His riches and his love poured out on us. Grace. So how, how do we anchor ourselves in grace? How do we have grace-filled living? I would say, first and foremost, we need to live with grace. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have character flaws so great that Christ had to die for them. You will be hurt by others. You will be offended by others. You will be mistreated by others. But live with grace grace towards others. And here's the other thing I would say, live for grace. Live for grace, be motivated that because God receives you just as you are and he loves you and accepts you. Don't look at that as an opportunity to do whatever you want. Use that as an opportunity to say, God, because of your great love for me, I want to live for you. 
Because of all that you've done, I want to sacrifice for you. Because you have given me everything, Lord, I want to give my all for your name. So the people who don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior can experience the grace of God. Use me as an instrument of your grace. The simplest definition, I think the most common definition of grace is God's unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. And so if there's a challenge for us to close with, it would be this. Flavor your life with God's unmerited favor.